By now we've all seen the video, an ISIS terrorist walks into uh, a church filled with Easter worshipers in Sri Lanka. He stops and pats a small child on the head, walks a little bit further, and he detonates a backpack, killing dozens in that church as a part of a coordinated attack on Christians and Easter worshipers in Sri Lanka that wound up killing over 300. And you watch the video, and you watch that man walk in, and you can't help but ask, what's wrong with that guy? The week I was writing this message, a story out of Oklahoma, Grady County, Oklahoma, talked about how four adults had been charged with child abuse. They had handcuffed a small child to uh, a dining table without a blanket and forced them to sleep there um, every night. They had thrown the small child, witnesses say, out the front door onto a pile of trash that was collecting in their front yard. They had super glued paper to the child's hair, and when it dried, they had yanked the paper off, pulling clumps of hair from the child's head, leaving them with patches. And, and you read stories like that and you think, what is wrong with people? The week I was writing this message, I read a story in the Atlantic about, um, written by a, a person whose village had been taken over in Syria by ISIS. And it was just story after story of, of torture and atrocities and execution and you think when you read something like that, what is wrong with the world? But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that when we slander or gossip or blow somebody up on social media or marginalize people because of their socioeconomic status or because of the color of their skin, when we, when we condemn with holy indignation sins of people and yet live with justification when our own sins are ignored by us, we never look in the mirror and say, what's wrong with me? But what is wrong with individual bad actors who blow up people worshiping? And what's wrong with mean people? And what's wrong with systems of belief and systems of government that perpetrate atrocities? And what's wrong with me is the same thing. What's wrong with all of us is sin. A man named G.K. Chesterton, I was reminded of this between services, uh, lived at the uh, end of the 19th century in England, um, was asked um, in an editorial, uh, what is wrong with the world? And he replied back these words, and it was published, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with all of us is sin. It's at the heart of the human condition. It's at the heart of the world in which we live. When, when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 several weeks ago, 
Um, we, we learned that, that sin is a part of us, that it is in our condition, that it has alienated us from God, that it is rebellion against his authority and against his rule in our lives. And as you continue to read the Bible and really pay attention as you read the Bible, it begins to dawn on you fairly early that if God is going to do anything to undo the carnage of Genesis 3, he's going to have to do it. Because mankind clearly lacks the capacity to get out of their own mess. And so the question that begins to be formed in your mind when you're reading the Bible is, what is God going to do? And there may be no better passage of Scripture that clearly demonstrates God's plan to restore us than Isaiah 53. That is your cue to find Isaiah 53 in your copies of God's Word. We're in a series of messages called Bible 101, and we are looking at a very subjective list of those passages of Scripture that every Jesus follower should be familiar with if they are really going to understand the length and breadth of God's story in Scripture. And in my personal opinion, you simply cannot say any list is worth its salt if it doesn't include Isaiah 53. It may be the one thing in this list that all of us can agree on that this passage of Scripture belongs. And so, I hope you found Isaiah 53. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1 begins with these words, who has believed what he has heard from us. That is fancy Bible language for you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and a judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put, on him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Before we go any further, let's figure out who Isaiah is, and if we can't figure out who he is, let's at least get him positioned on the calendar, all right? We all are familiar in the Old Testament with a man named King David. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. Isaiah was a prophet, meaning he was someone who God set apart to speak truth to the people of Israel. He was a prophet in Israel about 250 years after the life of King David. So that puts him at about 750. He's about 100 years before another person um, in the Bible, another prophet that God set apart to speak truth to, uh, to Israel, a man named Jeremiah. So he kind of falls roughly halfway between David and between Jeremiah. And the reason that Isaiah was set apart by God to speak truth is because the people of Israel were asking the question, what is wrong with the world? As they looked at the world in which they lived, they, they, they saw a lot of injustice. They saw that they themselves were the target of a great many of those injustices. And they just couldn't get their mind around why, as God's people, they were experiencing these things. And so they would ask God, what is wrong with the world? And God, through Isaiah and others, says, what's wrong with the world is you. You are wrong with the world. You are a rebellious people. You are a sinful people. You are fighting against the truth of God. And as they heard that message, they began to wonder what we are wondering or what we should be wondering now. Well, what's God going to do to to fix all of this? And God begins to lift the veil of time and point them forward to a suffering servant who would come and who would restore Israel to God. He would take care of the sin problem Israel was experiencing. But more than that, he would take care of the sin problem of the world. That's something that Israel routinely missed. They loved to pay attention to those things that talked about them and didn't listen to what the rest of the Bible said about anyone else. It's a little like that person who, who loves themselves in conversation said, enough about me, what would you like to say about me? You know, I mean, they were... They were a little bit like that. They always missed the greater implications of it. But in Isaiah 53, we see a real crystal clear picture that, that paints for us how God is going to restore the world. And it comes to us in two big sections. Now, I'm going to say this to you right off the bat. Most Baptists only focus on the first part, and they never pay any attention to the second part. And if you focus on the first part, don't pay attention to the second part, then you don't understand the first part. All right, so let's look at the first part, and then we're going to see what transpires next. All right, here's the first thing. If you are a blank filler outer, here you go. God's plan to restore us demands a divine substitute. God's plan to restore us demands a divine substitute. These verses make one thing very clear, and it is that the mission of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one to whom this pointed, the mission of the Messiah, Jesus, was to die. It was not to give mankind a moral makeover. It, it wasn't that we needed a, you know, a fixer-upper in our habits and in our attitudes. He didn't come to speak pretty words that we could turn into memes on Instagram. 
Jesus Christ came for to die. His death was not an accident. His death was the goal of his life here. And he came to die because we needed him to. We needed him to. That's a hard truth to accept, that he needed to die for us. It's very difficult to accept as we get deeper and deeper into the 21st century, but the fact of the matter is his death was for us. It was, this text makes clear, because of our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions, that he needed to die. And one of those words brings out the reason better than the rest of them. Sometimes people like to underline in their text, you may want to do this right now, it is the word transgressions. That's the money word that kind of captures the essence of all the others in Isaiah 53. It is the noun form of the, the verb in Isaiah's language that um, speaks to the idea of revolting or rebelling. That lets us know that, that these things that we do called sins are not accidental. I, I will never, my son is here, my, I will never get Compassionate Parent of the Year Award. That, that's not something that I was even up for. And one of the clearest ways that this is an example, I in fact did it yesterday, um, sometimes in our family someone will spill something or drop something, um, and sometimes when the kids were smaller they would do something they shouldn't do, and the immediate words that they would say are, I didn't mean to. And I responded 100% of the time with these words, well, good, because that just make you stupid, all right? <laughs> Good for me, huh? I'll, I'm, I'm waiting for the, uh, the bill to come in for their therapy as they, as they get older. But we do that with sin. Ah, I didn't mean to. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You say, well, how do you know that? Because of the word transgression. Transgression means to rebel. It means to revolt. It's an act of the will. I said this at the Good Friday service I've, I've said this before in this service. We tend to think of sin as accidentally throwing a rock through a window. That is not the biblical understanding of sin. The biblical understanding of sin is kicking the door down and killing everybody inside. It is that violent. It is that heinous to God. That is why we needed someone to die. We have committed treason against God. We've rebelled against his authority. We've revolted against his rule. We've committed treason against God. And in order for that treason to be adequately paid for, the death penalty had to be instituted. And right there, we begin to cringe a little bit because we begin to think, oh, this is that old religion stuff that I walked away from all these years ago, the idea that God is an angry God, that that's all he is. He's just an, he's an angry God. And you could do that justifiably if you didn't understand the nature of the death we're talking about here. 
the, the New Testament writers use a word that none of us use in our language anymore. It's called propitiation. Three of the authors use it. Paul, who tends to be viewed as the bad cop in the New Testament, the grumpy guy. He gets all the, anything people want to say negative about Christianity, they tend to lay it at the feet of Paul. And then the anonymous author of Hebrews, not Paul, but a disciple of Paul uses the word. And then a guy named John uses the word. The Apostle John. Now, the Apostle John, if we could, if we could kind of envision caricatures of the apostles, the 12 that followed Jesus, uh, the Apostle John would have on tie-dye and be flashing a peace sign, you know? He's, he's known uh, by people who study God's Word. He's known as the Apostle of Love. And what he says is this. He says, when I think about the cross of Jesus appeasing the wrath of God. And he uses that word propitiation. When I think about the cross of Jesus, appeasing the wrath of God, to me, it doesn't prove God's angry. It proves God's love. In fact, let me show you how, how he does that. Um, hold, hold your place. Use one of your ribbons in Isaiah 53. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Next year, at some point in the year, in the next church year, we're going to spend time in all of John's letters. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We're going to spend many, many weeks in those letters. So we'll come to this again. But I want you to, I want you to see what John says. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says something very Johnny. Okay? I mean, this is very prototypical of him. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's so John. That's what he, that's what he says. Let's love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so what he says is he says, anybody who loves has been born of God, is, is one of his children. So verse 7, a very John-like thing to say. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, another thing very John-like to say, anyone who does not love does not know God because God, here's, the, here's everybody's favorite Bible verse or part of it, God is love. This is where it comes from. So he says, if you love, you're born of God, you're a Christian. If you don't love, you're, you're not born of God. You're not a Christian, all right? So very simple, very ordinary John stuff, pedestrian John happening in verses 7 and 8. But then he goes on and says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He says, let me show you how I know that God is love. I'm about to prove to you how we know that God is love. He's going to give us two proofs. All right? First thing, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So I know that God loves me because he gave me Jesus. And through Jesus, I have Jesus's life. Through Jesus, I have the capacity for my life to become like the life that Jesus himself would live if he were me. That's the first way I know, John says, that God is love, is because I have Jesus and have his life so my life can be lived out. Okay, good, we know that. And then he says, in this is love. Here's, here comes a second proof. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Okay, how? And sent his son, here's the word, to be the propitiation for our sins. If you look up the word of propitiation 
in any dictionary, not a Bible dictionary, if you look up the word propitiation in any dictionary, you will find that it means to appease. So he is saying this. God's wrath is against sin. That's Romans 1, which Mike is going to take us through in a few, in a month or so. Uh, God's wrath is against sin, and if you just left it there, you've got an angry God. But we know that God is more than just holy. We know that he is also love on the basis of the fact that the, the death of Christ proved sufficient to deal with the outrage of sin that we have committed against God. So he says, and other biblical writers say, that the reason I know that God is love is because Jesus was the divine substitute. The reason that we know he's God's love is because we all know this. It's foundational in Christianity. Jesus was not just some dude off the street. He's just not some guy drew the short straw. Hey, you, you're going to die for everybody. We know that that's not the case. We know, again, foundation block of Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity, that Jesus was himself God. So what happens on the cross is that God demonstrates his holiness, that sin must be atoned for, and his love by turning that anger, that wrath against sin, back on himself. Therefore proving that God is both holy and that God is love. In fact, Paul says this. John, uh, let's, look, let's look at those verses in, from Romans chapter 5. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. But God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The, the love of God is what the cross represents because it's payment. It's satisfactory payment for sin. And then this. Most Baptists stop right here. They say, well, hallelujah, I got moved from the bad side to the good side, and uh, heaven is mine, and so as long as I come for a little pick-me-up every week or so, or because we're in the suburbs, every two weeks or so, um, I'm good. All I've done, I've done, the only thing that God expects me to do is to acknowledge the cross. Wrong wrong because God's plan to restore us was not simply to move us from the bad side to the good side God's plan to restore us John's already alluded to us is to give us the life of God so that our lives become what they should have been without sin that brings us to the second part of God's plan to restore us that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 53 so back to your blanks again God God's plan to restore us grants us the divine life. So it demanded a divine substitute. But because of the sufficiency of that divine substitute, it grants us a divine life. The death of Christ was comprehensive. It was for all sin and for all sinners. So that means that no one hears on an island by themselves with their sin. That whatever it is that you have done to, to offend God with your actions... It is not beyond the, the saving ability of the substitutionary death of Christ. And these last verses tell us why we can hold on to that. So let's go back and look at Isaiah 53 and let's look at the last three verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, he has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the servants, uh, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And everybody in here silently say, that's why I don't read the Old Testament. That None of that made any sense to me. And I get how without slowing down and really paying attention that that can be difficult to get. But those verses individually tell us three things. First of all, verse 10 tells us that death was not the end of the servant. In fact, it tells us that his days will be prolonged. Right there in Isaiah 53, we're told not only will the servant die, the servant will be resurrected. Death will not be the end of him. He will continue forward. Then in verse 11, we're told that that death accomplished our righteousness. So there was an aspect where the death of Christ moved us from this ledger to this ledger. right? But then verse 12 tells us, and it's easy to overlook because we're tired of reading by the time we get to the end of Isaiah 53. It's easy for us to overlook. It tells us that what the death of Christ accomplished was meant to be and experientially a part of our lives. That, that, that the, the victory that he won on the cross was meant to be shared in by all of us. And so that life that Christ himself gained in his resurrection was ultimately meant to be shared with us. So the purpose of the death of Christ was not simply to move you from one side of the ledger to the other. The purpose of the death of Christ was to get rid of the offense of sin so that you could finally become the habitation of the life of God. So that your life, as we learned last fall when we went through Colossians, so that your life can become the kind of life that Christ himself would live if he were you. That can be our experience because the wrath of God was satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross. Now, the idea that the cross is a substitutionary uh, death is not the only way that the Scripture teaches about the death of Christ. It speaks of the death of Christ as being a ransom paid. It speaks of the death of Christ as being a victory won. So, so the idea that death as a substitute is not the only thing that Scripture says about the cross, but it is the scale upon which all the other notes are played. That, that, that if, if we, we understand this is the basis, then we are free to see all of the other things, the wonderful things accomplished by the death of Christ. And our lives are free to become what he created them to be. So if you have an understanding of salvation that rightly sees that Christ was your substitute, but misses that the purpose of that substitute was to transform the character and quality of your life, both here and eternity, and really care nothing at all to live in that life that he won and really make no effort at all to live in that life, you can call what you believe whatever you want, religion, rule of life, whatever. Just don't call it biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not me walking an aisle 
getting moved from one side of the ledger to the other, and then going off my merry way and having people say nice but not really accurate things about me at my funeral. Biblical Christianity is having the debt cleared so that my life can be the vehicle through which Christ continues to live his life on this earth. So then let's close by asking, what does that life look like and how do we live in it? Well, Jesus says it very simply. We come to the cross, we accept his death for us as sufficient for our sin, and then he says, this is very, very difficult. He says, follow me. Follow me. That's all he says. He says, follow me. And you say, well, there's got to be more to it. And the reason you think there's got to be more to it is because you have uh, fallen victim to 2,000 years of Christian preaching. (laughs) One of my favorite things about preaching is uh, that I've heard said is this. Jesus spent three years making the things of God simple. Preachers have spent the last 2,000 making the things of God difficult. But Jesus just said, follow me. You say, okay, well, tell me what that means. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If, I've, if my debt's been cleared and I have been made right with God, I've been made righteous, that's what Isaiah 53 says, I've been made righteous by his righteousness, then what does it mean really to follow him? It means to do what he did. It means to do what he did. You say, do you mean turn water to wine, feed 5,000? No. It means to go behind that and see how Christ lived his life in relationship to the Father because the death of Christ has made it clear for you to relate to the Father now. And so how did Jesus relate to the Father? He prayed. And not, you know, firing off a dart to heaven on the way out the door, you know. God, let's make it a good one today. Engaging the life of God in prayer. We don't see Jesus actually studying Scripture, but we know he studied Scripture because of his teaching. So it means getting into the Word, but not just to read the Bible. Getting into the Word to encounter the life of God in there, to meet God in the Word. It means going off and spending time alone in solitude. It means doing something that Baptists don't like to even think about, but it's called fasting, where we voluntarily go out without something, primarily food, for a spiritual purpose, saying rather than enjoy this, I want to enjoy the presence of God for a specific purpose. All of these things, these things that we see Jesus doing are the things that he means for us to follow him in doing. And you can do that because the debt's been wiped clean and his life now is in you. And so as you you are an apprentice of Christ... Following him in the things that he did, the life of Christ is unleashed in you and the character and quality of your life starts to become something like it was meant to be. This is an important passage of Scripture. This is holy ground because it tells us God's plan to restore us, to make us right with him. And it forces us to confront the heinous nature of our sin but it also allows us to behold the wondrous mystery 
of a God who loves infinitely and has done everything to bring us to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.